Well, good morning, everybody. This is Jeff Morton. Uh, it is morning here in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, I'm returning to Eden. Dean is not going to be with us today. She's busy working on Revelation Unmasked and also getting ready for the Temple Course with Rico Cortez down in Florida. But I have a guest today, Mr. James Brayshaw, and I'll introduce him in just a moment. He's written four interesting books. Um, and I got to tell you, folks, from the moment I started putting these books up, and talking about all of this stuff, the pushback that I have gotten has been incredible. So with Mr. Br Mr. Brayshaw joining me today, in, in his own words, we're going to ask him several questions. We're going to have a nice chat about all of this and why he did that. Uh, James is a, a person from Canada, and I'm going to, I can't even pronounce the uh, town that he lives in or the province that he lives in. So uh, having said all of that, let me just introduce you to, to uh, Mr. James Brayshaw. Welcome to Returning to Eden, my friend. How are you? I am well. Thank you for the invite and for having me and making time to be on Returning to Eden. And it's pronounced Saskatchewan is the province, the western province in Canada, where I reside with my family. Yeah, but that the, the town that you live in, I couldn't say that. What? How do you say that name? It's Saskatoon is how you say that. Saskatoon. <laughs> that's easy enough. Anyway. Saskatoon um, Town. Uh, that is easy. People around here understand it as Toontown. Toontown. Okay. Well, listen, uh, can I call you James? Is that okay? Yeah, by all means. And please call me Jeff. You know, James and I have been talking now for a couple of weeks. We've had a couple of video chats. I've been reading his books. He's got four books. Uh, but... You guys don't know who he is, and so, James, why don't you tell our audience a little bit about you, and and I kind of would like to, as part of your introduction, how you ended up into all of this. That's a good question. And, you know, I get, to, get that question from lots. How did you get there? How did you end up in this? Because um, it's changed me. Being here compared to where I was uh, 10, 15, 20, and 30 years ago, uh, I'm now nearing, I mean, I'm, I, I like to say, I'm near 50. I don't often say which side that is, but I'm near 50. And, um, and, and we had a long journey through very uh, dramatic family encounters in our traditional Christianity that we are part of. And when I'm asked how I got here, uh, people see that it's changed me, knowing that there's only one God and there's no other supernatural cosmic entity to compete with that one supernatural being who you and I believe exists. And so many years ago, in fact, this, is the tenth, this year is the 10th anniversary of the publication of Volume 1 of the Imagine No Satan series. So uh, it's been a privilege to, to chat with people on this 10th anniversary. But when I was involved in traditional religion, in my toontown, it was a pretty robust Pentecostal version of Christianity. And a little something since the 2nd century AD, there's been... Um, uh, 33,834 different sects of Christianity and versions. So the one I was involved in was the traditional Pentecostalism that started in, um, in I think it was uh, Arizona. But I, I was really involved very deeply. I was a deacon in the system. And I worked very closely with a lot of the leaders and delivered content and workshops. And, and I was one time asked by a guy, who is moving into the Hebraic roots movement, which has informed me in so many ways about who and what the Messiah is and the, and the Creator is and how to understand His Word. And this question came to me um, 
Well, what did Jesus think of Satan? Like, he obviously thought the same thing of Satan as you do, as we do, in our version of religion. And I said, oh, yeah, for sure, because, you know, right, every religion thinks they agree with Jesus. Uh, we can call him Yeshua, Jesus. Uh, right now I'm not going to quibble about which terms we use, because it's about a message we want to bring together, Jeff. And so I, I was asked a question, and interrupt me if you need to, need to take a question here. Go ahead. Well, go ahead. I was asked a question, so I went to work on it. I said, yeah, I'm going to go show my buddies that, of course, Jesus believed what we did. And as I continued to poke in a little deeper and a little deeper and a little deeper, the layers of that proverbial onion, onion started to shift and move and fall away because it was showing me, hmm, he didn't believe this and he didn't believe that. And, and he didn't even believe the way the word is used by us today because he was a Hebraic and man in an Aramaic culture. He didn't believe the word satanus or satan in the Hebrew or Hasatan, was the same as I believed it in my English version today. And so that really disturbed me because one of the things about me, and I can't say this about all people in religion, was that I hate being wrong about my religion. And it just feels awful, right? We're raised, most of us in North American religion are raised, and I learned this through my uh, wonderful wife's gracious, patient instruction to me that performance orientation is big. We need to perform to get the inheritance, uh, is what it is. And uh, so she also was able to teach me that I felt bad when I was wrong. And when we worked through that slowly, very slowly, like the whole volume, the four-volume set was six to seven years of research and writing before I published volume one. And so I wow. dealt with it. Yeah, I dealt with it. I dealt with this issue. Okay, Jim, you're not bad if you're wrong about what you've been taught to believe since you were a little guy. And, and that was good because I was able to explore. The thankful thing about this, I began exploring the Satan after we came into some Hebraic roots views and were actually kicked out of our church because of it. Here, here. You've been pushed aside from a couple uh, institutional uh, they, churches. They met me at the door, wouldn't let me in on Sunday. <laughs> Go ahead. And, and it hurts when it happens, but in yes, retrospect, so clear because it liberated me from being um, scrutinized about my thoughts, ideas, and teachings by that religion. I was able to freely think now without saying, okay, but I got to please the man. I'm going to call it the man. And then I kept going deeper and deeper and, and pushing. And I, I had a, compiled a, quite an extensive amount of research. And I'm sitting um, in our living room talking to my wife, partner, and I said, hey, hon, I think there's no Satan what she says to me and she had been she like I said we share so much and she knew where I was going and I said I think I have to write a book about it Ange and uh, she said Jim well if you do you just better be sure because she knew it was going to be really hard on us as a as a family on us as a culture and then on religion as a um, as an entity that guides the masses and so I began composing I thought Good, I'll have this one book done in a year, and it'll be maybe 400 pages. But as you see, the four volumes were, in my mind, Jeff, the four volumes were originally supposed to be one volume. And I thought, oh, it'll be a big volume, but I couldn't do that. I had to make it for... Nobody like, would read it. <laughs> well, that's right. Nobody would read it. It's a great paperweight or a doorstopper. Uh, <laughs> I remember, Jim, when I, when I got the books in the mail... Because I, when I found out about you, somebody sent me a video of you, one of your YouTube deals, and I was listening to you. And of course, I'm in the, I'm in the same camp 
as you are because I started dismantling the ideal of Satan being God's nemesis about three years ago, and it just didn't make sense to me. There was too much in the page of the scripture that didn't make sense to me. And, of course, since I became Torah-based in my understanding, I like to say I reconnected the gospel to the Torah and the Torah to the gospel, and I started digging to understand the culture from which these folks were reading or writing this information from, and I started seeing things about this being called Satan that was, uh, it was just kind of re absurd. And so, so for me, when I got your DVD or the YouTube video, I went, I immediately ordered the four books. And when they showed up, I went, oh, my God, how am I going to read all this? You know. <laughs> but as I started digging into your books, in particular the first one, I started saying, oh, my God, he's researched this. He's looking at this from a cultural context, a research context. He's looking at the Hebrew. I mean, you, it, it wasn't just a bunch of ideals and hypotheses that you were writing about. And I love the fact that you, you actually mentioned, I'm not writing something that's written in stone. There's opportunity here. But the research material was familiar to me. And I went, okay, this is going to be interesting. So as you finish telling the audience a little bit about how you ended up here, I saw your work, and I went, you know, this is, this is worth taking a look at. But go ahead. Well, and thank you for that. That's so kind and affirming because there's lots of opposite from affirmations, as you know, going through this journey. So it's great to have somebody say thank you. And, and, and so my, my work began to write it. How do you put it together? What, put, what pieces do you put in? What pieces do you omit? And I just realized this needs to be an A to Z of showing people why there's no Satan, not just in, the, not just in one passage in the Old Testament using hasatan as the Hebrew term, but every passage there. And I kept working, just I systematically went through each passage explaining it, putting it back in. I was taught through the Hebrew roots version of, of, of Torah understanding to picture things in, if you can, in their original historical, literary, right. social, and religious context. And right. so I kept moving back there, say, okay, Jim, and Dr. Walton, is, on, the, um, on the last conference you had in September, does a great job of saying, look at it from, I think he uses their cultural river. I didn't know that term then, but that's how I was doing it. And the more, the more you see, oh, okay, that's how they did things then, different than we do now, it kind of buoys you up to say, well, let's explore the next one. And let the pieces build on each other so that we can add them for, for deeper understanding, as you know. So the understanding kept growing. I would share it with close friends in the Torah community. Christian community was hard to share it with. Some of the best people to share it with that, you know, you know that thing where you're reading something and you don't have an understanding, so you say, ah, oh, we'll never understand that. It doesn't make sense. And this is many of the mystical stories we get through the Gospels. But when you share it with somebody who's not trained in religion, they just look at you, well, that makes sense. And then they move on, right? They can accept it because they don't have that undercurrent of, of entrenched teaching that we've been brought up in in this culture. And it, it was also encouraging to do that. Eventually, I published the first book. And I have to say, before I did, because this is hard on Christian communities and Torah communities, I went to our community, and we had all, they knew where I was going. And I said, folks, I, I just need to move away from this because I don't want to disparage the name of your loving group. Uh, so I didn't want to be connected with their group 
uh, not for me because I knew that people would then paste them with my or paint them with my brush. And it, it was good because it gave me another level of freedom. I didn't have to worry about that. I still, I still did end up seeing a lot of damage to my family because of this work, uh, but we've recovered and um, we're a loving, uh, supportive group here. I saw my, my closest circle, family circle, leave traditional religion and adopt the understanding after reading. They all read the stuff, and it grew from there. And, and now today, um, just to polish up this, today when I look back on all of it, I see, you know, I would have done some things different. I would have started different by not being so forceful with my new understanding and uh, be a little more gentle with realizing, hey, as hard as it was on me, um, it's got to be at least that hard on other people. So let's tread softly and love people to life. And then one of the biggest moments that I felt uh, the affirmation that, you know what, this is meaningful stuff, is when we were invited to an atheist group to give a lecture. Because they'd never heard from a Christian person um, that believes in God, that there's no Satan. And we had, I had people coming up after that session saying, wow, like if that's real, I, I think I could almost believe in God now. Because that's a holdout for so many, right? The believing there's this, this punishing God that's going to send uh, Jeff to hell to burn and torture forever if he doesn't have the right version of belief on board. And, it, and, and so today it's, it's a background for me. I, I do work in the fire service. And, um, you're I've a been, fireman, right? You're, you're a fireman. How long have you been a fireman? 27 years now. And, and, and I want to just, before you continue, you have two children? You and your wife right. have two kids? Boy and girl or two boys? I, I can't remember what we talked about. Two boys. Two boys. And before you continue, I want to say something, because when we talked initially on the video call, you said there was a certain amount of freedom that I now experienced because I was able to kind of step away from the traditional understanding. I understood that poignantly because that's exactly where I'm at. So as I take the barrage of, of, of um, uh, naysayers about this very conversation we're having, I still have that freedom to, to explore this because, like Jesus said, you put your traditions above me. Well, I don't want to do that. I want to go back and understand what he was talking about. So that freedom that I have now as a result of saying something doesn't fit here and, and, and getting kicked out of a church was a good thing for me because it also gave me the freedom to start digging into other resources to find out what other people thought. And so I get what you're saying, and I'm sure a lot of people in my audience and our audience understand exactly what you're saying. And also, I remember I was a bull in a china shop when I first got all this. And I, my wife was like broken glass all around the living room floor as I was salivating at this new understanding and the freedom to explore the Bible from a Hebraic lens and certainly from the original writer's lens. And I was just ridiculous. There's some blog articles that I wrote that I'm ashamed of today because you, it's a process. You have, to, you have to park something up next to the heart of people, not rip it out of their chest. And I had a pastor tell me, he said, Jeff, you sit and you, 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 you present yourself to the audience, the very first thing you do is pull out a bomb and blow them all up. <laughs> and so I understand that whole thing, too. But anyway, so you wrote the first book. What was yeah. the, uh, how, did it, how was it received? 
It was interesting. I was in, I was contacted by several media agencies to do interviews about it, and um, they connected that to me being kicked out of the church system. But it wasn't the reason why. I was kicked out because I was I, I was exploring Hebraic roots and encouraging my friends in that system to also explore uh, with my many times with that bomb that you speak about. So um, so I was then given support by the people who loved me. But in fact, some of the people who do love me were given very serious threats when they were encountered in coffee shops, uh, poking in the chest, like literally, or squeezing of the arm, you better tell Jim or your husband, sorry, I don't actually, I don't really want to talk much about uh, how how it's interacted with my relationship. But I will say this one thing. When my partner was accosted in a coffee shop because of my work, I knew I had to shift something. When you say partner, you're talking about your wife. Okay, in Seattle, that word has a couple of meanings. <laughs> so I, okay. I want to make sure you say your wife, <laughs> your, your female wife, right? That's right. As much Thank you very much. Okay. We've Moving been, on. We've been, we're in our 30th year of marriage. Um, and so it, it hurts, but it made me shift a bit. But I kept going back to the people through this media coverage that I first got. Um, I was no longer welcome at a number of churches. Um, I was told if I want to come and renounce this stuff and repent, I can come back, like, which is a good invitation. I received a registered letter to my door that said, don't come back without express permission. Handed in my keys to the castle, because I literally had keys to the castle, and uh, said, I'm done. And then, just okay, I've said I'll end a couple times. The last thing I want to say about how I got here and how I stayed here, I think, is the important part, too is the encouraging things like uh, when I got information, sorry, correspondence from a young mother uh, who, who used to be terrified of demons and her kids were having nightmares. And she simply said, thank you. When I stopped believing in demons, demons stopped chasing me. And yeah, I thought, right. well, wow, you wrote that, that in your book. Yeah. Yeah, you wrote That's about that in your book. That's well, listen, Jim, I, what I want to do is I want to just jump right into one particular topic. There's no way we're going to cover as much material as you've written in an hour. Uh, and so, But I do want to just kind of grab one particular subject to get us started, and that is Jesus in the wilderness and this whole concept of bread into rocks, rocks into bread. Uh, we're talking about the chapter in Luke. Um when I read your 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 information on this, I went, you know, that makes perfect sense because I understood how they questioned the prophets in the ancient world. So let's pick it up there. Jesus is in the wilderness. He's 40 days. And all of a sudden, according to tradition, and by the way, when I read your account, it occurred to me. We read that as though it's an eyewitness account because that's the way it's presented. And so, and you kind of dismantle that. So I'll let you uh, take the floor on that one. Sure. So just on that point, dismantling it, like who was there with the Messiah, with Jesus, uh, to watch this encounter so that they could go write about it? Well, there couldn't have been uh, any of his apostles there. They're not referenced at all in the story. So it's, it's a secondary, at least, account by someone who was either told about it or heard about it. A long way. So, so we get uh, we get to the end. I'm going to just say the end of that first. It's, I've um, recently enjoyed speakers who are sharing the end, and then we fill in the blanks. So, Jesus in the wilderness, when he was tempted, 
The word is parazzo in the Greek, and it is tested. Parazzo, P-I-R-A-D-Z-O. And I'm not a Greek or Hebrew scholar, but I've learned a, a good chunk of stuff about it in my research journey. And the word means um, test in almost every other place. In fact, every other place in the New Testament, it, is the, it means testing. And we see several times, I outline them in my book, and actually if your listeners and watchers want to go to imaginalsatan.com, they can click on Volume 3 where they will show that very chapter. That shows all the places where Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua, was tested by Pharisees, by religious leaders, because as you said, prophets needed to be tested. And right. to prove who they are, because like, there's lots of us out there that say, oh, maybe say, we're a prophet, I'm a prophet. And when people say it of themselves, uh, it's really hard for us to take. And so backing down now, he went into the wilderness to contemplate. So we know it's the Pharisees that tempted, tested him in the wilderness. They wanted to see, is this dude who everybody says could be the Messiah, is he really going to stack up? And, and they do a heck of a job of outlining what the tests are. Um, if we look at rabbinic literature and Essenic literature out of Qumran, we find there was many tests in place from the rabbinic. Um, in fact, they were called the demon priests in some ancient um, thoughts because their job was to be an adversary and test someone. And they outlined many tests, such as can they, can they fall off a high place and live? Can they turn stones to bread? Uh, and so backing down, when he went to the wilderness, start there. He was the Messiah or a very strong candidate and had lots going on, a big responsibility ahead of him and a big responsibility in front of him that day. In that ancient Aramaic culture, it was important for us to go out into a, a dimly lit place where in all the hub of the city, it, will you ever go sit in the woods and just ponder? Uh, okay, so we go out and we do some real meditative pondering to connect with the divine and to connect with ourselves and to sort out thought. So out there, he said, I'm going to do this. Now it's interesting, what happened right before he went out there was John, the Baptist, was on the riverbanks of the Jordan, and uh, he says, hey, look at this, here comes the guy, this is the, the lamb who could take away the sins of the world, right? And, and any time there was a big event on the Jordan related to religion, and John, as we know, was uh, not in traditional um, thought of the day. He was kind of a, a rogue apostle. And who would have been looking at that, though? This John, where people were following him more and more, this guy was very important in that culture. It was an Aramaic culture slash Hebraic, also Hellenized. So there was a lot of things in play. And, and there was all kinds of people watching this, because they were always waiting for Israel to be restored to the kingdom. Right. right. And, and so... People on this land, on the land side of this river, said, hey, he just pointed out this Jesus guy as a really big deal. The Pharisees were watching, very likely. And there's no direct statement they are, but just conceptually, it makes sense that people were watching. If they weren't, they at least heard somebody report back. Just like my buddies, when I went to church, reported back to the, the ministers. You know what Jim's saying about Satan? Hey, they always report back. So... Then he went out. It was then that he went out after he met with John on the Jordan and the dove came down, which we talk about that in another time, what that might be. And then he left and he's out there. And, and so these men who said, okay, if this is really thing, we got to go follow this guy and put some tests in place. And the word Satan that we see him meeting in the wilderness is the word Satanus, which is referring to an adversary or, and that is anybody, if you test me today, 
on some of my concepts, or I test you on yours, we're being Satans to each other. Uh, we're just being adversaries. Which would have been the concept. That's a critical statement. Because that concept, uh, and just to interject, as you and don't lose your thought, I always wondered why in the Tanakh and the Torah it talked about when, uh, when um, Balaam was accosted by the angel of the Lord, it calls him Hasatan. And I've, I've, that's been bothered me for 30 years. Why are they calling the angel, the angel of the Lord Hasatan in the, in the Tanakh, in the Torah, in the Hebrew? And I began to see these various passages where whenever there was a man who was adversarial to the kingdom of God, they called him Hasatan. Several places in scripture, so go ahead. Yeah, every time. And one quick note on that, Numbers 22, 22, and then in 32 we see the word Hasatan used again. So, yeah, the angel of the Lord is Satan in chapter, in verse 22, in verse 32 it says, and came to Balaam to Satan to withstand against Balaam. And that word is, again, Satan. So, in the wilderness now, this Messiah candidate, right, because there was a bunch of candidates, and I, we write, I, we, I write about it in there, there's a whole bunch of people that could have been a Messiah at that right. in that very period. And, and, and he's now in the wilderness with these individuals after some contemplative days. Let's say, let's the test through this. Well, let's go up to the temple. And here's an interesting point. The pinnacle of the temple was known to be so many feet, and there's some rabbinic literature that talks about an expectation that the Messiah could launch himself off that pinnacle and live. Right? The angels would get him, basically. Right? It's a bit mystical, but it's their, their man-made design tests. Just like, I don't know if you've ever had that test when uh, uh, you have children, right? Yes, four. When, when, they, when they used to hold a, a, pendul- a pendulum necklace over, your, over the pregnant mother's belly, and if it spinned one way, it was a female baby, but spun the other way, it was a male baby. People made that test up because they wanted to try to find an answer before they get full knowledge. I, I've actually never heard that one before. <laughs> Is that Canadian? That <laughs> thing. <laughs> <laughs> but but I do know people have done the pendulum type thing for various things. It's kind of a cultic, cultic type thing. But uh, no, see the point that I I don't want people to miss is that when the interpreter and the writers and the trans- translators are writing this, they're talking about the adversity that Yeshua was experiencing, just like all of the prophets. There were hundreds of prophets. You're right. But we don't, in, tra- in traditional Christianity, understand that every other day there was a new prophet talking about he was the one. So they had all these tests, and they did all these tests, and they antagonized these people to prove they had to prove themselves. And so you're saying that it was the same thing with Jesus or Yeshua proper in the wilderness. Right. So he went up there, if he did or didn't, whether it was in his vision or in reality. I won't go into that too much here. But the point is, he said, I don't have to pass your tests, boys. Your religion's a false political religious system. You're guided by the Romans and the, and the uh, Greco-Roman version of, of, of government and religion. It's combined. Basically, he's saying, I don't need to pass your tests. I'm going to do my thing. You can't stop me. And, uh, and he moved on. And, and they, they were not satisfied that he was the Messiah, as you see repeatedly throughout the New Testament, where... He says, and then, the, and then, as it were, the Pharisees came to test Jesus. And the word test, if, if the listeners want to look up the word test in their uh, concordance or on their online Bible software in, in the New Testament, you'll see how many times it's connected to religious leaders testing him. 
and it fits because the word satanus in the Greek goes back to the word satan in the Hebrew, and it almost, in fact, always means it's an adversary that's coming from humans. Now, we do see God as the adversary sometimes, so there's a couple little layers there. But it's never another secondary supernatural entity. So, so why do why do you Jim? Why do you think that the translators? Well, I would imagine I probably could have this answer, but let's hear your answer. Why would they singularly make Satan the repositor of this entire story? Why would they do that if it's if it's more than? If they're following him around to test him, why then did the translators singularly make Satan the demon, the bad guy? Yeah, great question. Now, we cover that in volume three. It's titled, um, Who's the Devil Jesus Knew? And he actually more so in volume two. The Imaginal Satan is the name of volume two. And what I do is I outline how we got there culturally. And when... When you and I were living back then, we, at one point, our people were in Persia, they were exiled, and there was two, two versions of, uh, of exile. There were different directions. But when we were liberated from Babylon, as you know, was taken over by Persia, and then we were there for many years learning Persian ways and Persian mysticism. And Zoroastrianism. Thank you. Yeah, Zoroastrianism. And just to give the listeners, who so you've talked about this before with your audiences, uh, Zoroastrianism, this was a guy who had a vision. He was a prophet in Persia. And right. as you know, he said, oh, I had a vision. There's one good God and there's one evil God. Right there, he identified two gods. And then because we were trapped in Persia, we started learning this dualistic philosophy. And and that's the divorce what took place. Like, if um, if... Our, if we got divorced from our partners and our children were young, they would learn two different versions of all of our family stories as they grow. And in that day, our, our Hebrew ancestors were divorced from Torah. Right. And the correct understanding. And, and, and then, interesting, there's the word Pharisee. Some scholars connect it to Parsiism, Parsi, Pharisee, which was a mystical school of thought in Persia. And we, we see an account of the Pharisees leaving Persia on their way back to Jerusalem and carrying with them the concepts they learned in Parsiism. In, um, That's interesting because my co-host, Dr. Dina Dye, has had this conversation with me because they brought a lot of that mysticism. I mean, folks, like we've been saying forever on this program, the, um, the Bible's not a scientific understanding to those folks back there. It was all mystical. And so their world was not science-based. It was myth- mythologically based. And so when they came out of Persia, when they came out of Babylon, when they came out of Egypt, they brought all their gods. In Ezekiel 20, it talks about how Yahweh saw them walking through the Red Sea, carrying all their idols, all their gods. So if there was only one god, and this is a very important point because in several of your books you address this, if the Hebrews were monotheistic, they also had a whole lot of gods that they, that they bowed down to, which is one of the problems that they had. It was one of the biggest problems that they had. Ezekiel 20 talks about you brought your idols through the Red Sea, you brought them into the wilderness, and then your children took them into the land. And as a result of that, you were dispersed again. So they were worshiping all kinds of gods. And you mentioned in, in uh, the book, it says, yeah, we don't diminish God, 
but we lump the supernatural gods of the ancient world, including Satan, into the same framework. And you mentioned several scriptures where God himself says, according to the writings of Moses, you worship other gods. Therefore, Satan would be, and you go to great lengths talking about, in the traditional understanding of Christianity, even though we know God and Jesus, but we lump Satan as though he's some kind of supernatural being that has this audience with the creator of the universe. And I love how you mentioned in the book, can you imagine Satan thinking he had the audacity to accost Jesus in the wilderness and say, hey, turn these rocks into bread, I'll give you some of your own land. Yeah, yeah right. And I'm glad you went there because that piece we didn't get to on that whole, uh, whole story about the temptation in the wilderness, you and I, and yeah, how how could he even imagine this uh, this Yeshua, Jesus in the flesh, God in the flesh, whatever power we believe he has, and what, whoever he is in relation to the God the Father, we don't need to go into all that. But the fact that he was Im- imbued with divine authority, and then this little impish, uh, I think we talked about it before, a Chester and Spike thing, where this little impish dog is coming alongside. Hey, 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 Spike, can I come with you? Oh, Spike, let me. You can't do this. I I remember your illustration on that in the book. Um, let's talk about uh, moving on because, you know, I know we're not going to convince anybody. I just want to present your information so that they, you know, the, you know what I find ironic, Jim, is this. And, you know, I'm kind of not on board with the Hebrew roots mindset. I'm in, on board with the kingdom mindset these days. But I got here through the Hebrew roots uh, world, and I think you, you can attest to the same thing. Um, I, I think the whole Bible is about the announcement of the kingdom of God on the earth. And so, having said that, as we see this restoration of this return to the things of God, why do you suppose there's such a, you know, I've, I've, I've talked to so many Torah-based believers that when there's a question or an issue, they rely and defend the Christian understanding while returning to Torah. Mm. How, how, how is that working for you? As Because if there is no Satan, the Christians are going to defend the fact that there is a Satan, period. Yeah. Cross the board. I've dealt with it for the last month as I prepare for this interview. So we're leaving the traditional understanding of Christianity but defending the traditional understanding of Satan. <laughs> How does that work for you, my friend? <laughs> a lot doesn't work for me because I, here's where I was a bit stupider than, I, than uh, I am today, is that as soon as I discovered this, after going through Hebraic Roots teaching, I thought, I'll tell my Hebrew buddies, uh, oh, yeah, there's no Satan, too, because that's how they thought of it in Hebrew, in Hebrew land back then. And I was very foolish to think that it, it, it would not it would they could not shift away from that one uh, maybe it was i think part of it is again back to being wrong right we give up so much when we move away from traditional christian beliefs and doctrine and we've given up a lot and now if you're going to take this really big piece away and say that doesn't exist it just goes uh, against every piece of the human condition that says i can't move this far this fast and, and to find a way to slow down. That's why this work's been percolating for 10 years out there. 
and I'm seeing more Christian people now email me and say, wow, this changes everything for me. And, and so, like, when, when you've had it mentioned to you, people aren't ready for this. That may be true for many people, but they weren't ready for Yeshua. They weren't ready for the Torah. They weren't ready for the tablets. But until you're presented with it, you can't get ready for it. Well, you know, that's absolutely true when you think about Moses getting the Torah, the written decrees from, from God Almighty on, on, the, on the high mountain. Of course, people don't understand the high mountain simply means in the place of his presence. Uh, when we understand their understanding of it, like John Walton says, the Bible's not written to us, it's written to them, but it's meant for every generation. Well, we owe it to those people to go back and understand what they're writing about from their world and the cognitive resources by which they're using to give us the information, you know, in the, in the face of Whirlpool and Frigidaire and United Airlines. That con- none of those concepts existed back then. So we, we, due diligence requires us to go back and look at the world that they lived in, which is the heart of our program, Returning to Eden. And so as I was going through your book, you do that. And you have tremendous amount of resources, your bibliography. I mean, it's, it's not just James Brayshaw having a notion and then putting forth a theory. Although you do have several theories, none of it's written in stone other than the fact that you began to question the ideal of a guy running around in a red suit with pointed ears and a doggy tail who was king of the fallen angels. I mean... The story in itself is it's, it's like allegoric on so many levels, and yet it is tradition within most religious systems in the earth today. It is tradition, and tradition is a seductress. One of my best Hebrew scholars who divorced me after I started saying that there's a, no Satan uh, taught me one time tradition is a seductress, and it is really hard for us not to return those traditional beliefs but i i want to maybe we can talk about in a moment why satan is a god if he or i was i was actually going to do that why do we have the doctrine of satan which is chapter number one in the first volume that's exactly where i was going let me just throw this into this conversation because you talked about the bibliography and the research um i just need to say that i i have dealt with the imposter syndrome that the credentialed people of the world will say, man, you got no PhD in this. You can't possibly know. <laughs> right? uh, but the research, the evidence, in fact, Dr. Walton says, let the evidence speak, right? Don't, right. Let, the Holy Spirit, don't let the Holy Spirit download it to you because it's evidence-based. And, and, and there's evidence there that is all irrefutable on so many levels. And I, I'm not afraid anymore to contend with my own ego. Okay, I don't have a PhD, uh, I, that's okay. I did what I did because I love the idea of only having one God in the entire cosmos and not this secondary and then multiple gods such as the ancients all had. And then now I'm free to, to say, you know what, when Jim, what credits do you have? I could say, I don't have any credits. But I do remember a group of 12 that also had no cred. Right. And they were roaming around with the, the Messiah. Yeah, I, I agree. I had a black pastor, as I mentioned before the show. He asked me, where did I get my seminary degree? And I said, I, I got it from under a kitchen sink uh, in the plumbing world because that's why I do a lot of my contemplating. And I said, and I have the butt crack to prove it. Uh, really upset him. 
But, but I mean, you know, it, it's to the credit of a human being to study and resource the things of God. And it doesn't mean that you have to be academic, although I will say about the academic world, I didn't realize there was an academia in the way that I understand it now. These people like John Walton, they focus 40 years on one particular area, okay? And so as I started learning from them as opposed to the Sunday sermons, I started realizing, oh, my God, there's a mountain of information in these people that doesn't filter down into the pews. And that, to me, was eye-opening. So I started learning from the academics, and that's how I met John Walton, and that's how I know about Michael Morales and so many others. But, but you're the first person, like me, who just decided to take it upon ourselves to do our own research. Right. And I can imagine, as we talk about, how did the Satan doctrine happen? When you started exploring all of this, you must have had a ton of aha moments. Yeah, I did. And, and one aha moment inspires you to keep going. And it, it happened because the religious institutions needed to have some leverage over the people. And as you may know, when the Catholic system years ago said, no, no, well, when, when the Bible was all in Latin, only the priests could read it. it right. you, and I, you couldn't even get one, man. Uh, and so that's a, a measure of control that that system needs to have because we as humans always want some power. And when we acquire religious power, it's like a toxic infection and it flourishes for many people who feel the force of that power. I want more power. So then if I can control the knowledge and also tell people, you have to beware of this entity that's going to take you away from the kingdom uh, but I'll tell you how to stay away from that entity and what to do to make sure that entity doesn't get you, then that's more power. And it's about jumping hoops to get there. And that leads to adopting the same. Every ancient culture had a bad God version to, to say, okay, but do this to be on our side. Social compliance, right? We're programmed for social compliance. Uh, but for that. I got to jump in here because... One of the things we fail to understand, and I, I really keyed in on this, is the story of the Bible is still being written. We're still participants in the kingdom of God being birthed in the earth. And the system that you talk about, the political system that we're talking about, which is what they were all dealing with across the board, was control. So in your country, you have lunacy happening up there, and in our country, we have lunacy happening here. It's just a different name. But it's the same thing. You just mm -hmm. stated poignantly how controlling the minds and thoughts of people was what every ruthless dictator and tyrant and despot wanted to do. And so one of the greatest forms that mankind has used to do that is through religious systems, and you call them rightfully systems. So we see the Islamic system, we see the Christian system, we see the Catholic system, we even see the Jude uh, Judaism which has a bunch of systems in it. But the ideal is the one thing they all have in common, which is something that is passionately in my brain, is division. They oh, yeah. create division and they subjugate people to other people. So you become subjugated to a religious understanding or a religious tradition, and God help you if anybody takes that away from you. And the God of the Bible that I know is trying to take that away from all of us which is why 
you and I are having this conversation because, in my mind, God Almighty is trying to restore us to what he's doing. And so far, to the best of my knowledge, Satan has not been able to stop him from doing that. True. So go ahead. Powerless, impotent entity. And, and so then that coupling that political religious system that needs power and has to devise a secondary entity to scare people to run to the system. I need the system needs to give me a reason to run to it. So give me some adversary that's on the other side that I have to I can only get the system's protection over that adversary. That's coupled with social compliance, as I mentioned. And, and I don't know if I'm going to get the answer I'm hoping for from you, Jeff. I don't even know if you have a, a history of being raised as a Christian boy. But it, it, We had a dog named Satan. Can I say more? <laughs> no, I was not raised as a Christian. I, I accepted the Lord, traditional Christian understanding of Jesus, in 1977, October the 6th. That's when my journey began. I was probably 18 years old. Well, that's, that's a pretty good age. Can you remember, and would you think of this for many people who are raised in religion or come into it the way you did, at what point does somebody ask the question in their own head, how can God let Satan exist? Why would he create him if there's going to be this punishment and torture forever for people God supposedly loves? That's a long way to ask it, but do you, you hear what I'm asking? I, I've, you know, it never made sense to me. It, it's, it's the same as if Jesus on the cross said, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? Yet I come to do the will of my Father. Never, never, I could never put the two together. I understand now that he's quoting chapter 22 of Psalms. But those questions plagued me. The number one question for me, Jim, was, Lord, if the Jews didn't get it, why do we read the material every Sunday that they wrote telling us all about it? It just never made sense to me. So that was, that was, I think that was, that was a dividing wall between me and Christianity. And I, trust me, I, Christianity has taught me tons of stuff, okay? And I love the Christian heart. And don't misunderstand me there, folks, at all. But I started asking these questions that the, when I would ask the pastors these questions, and they get mad at me. I'm going, what are you getting mad about? I'm trying to understand this. You teach us every Sunday. Why are you getting mad? Because I'm asking you about the festivals. Why are you getting mad? Because I'm asking you, why did Jesus get baptized if he was without sin? So these, these questions start, they kept happening to where I thought, okay, I'm going to have to go learn this myself. And I did get a bit of a download from the Lord when he said, go learn why I was Jewish. Because to me, that was the key to unlocking where we are today. Love and that. I could never understand Satan. I had a vision type thing happen a long time ago. I was standing on a high mountain. It was pitch black. There was no lights. And I could see the stars and, and the cosmos. And all of a sudden, this, this dude came walking up to me and goes, what you looking at? And I said, well, my God is awesome. And, and this guy, I never even looked at him. I, he goes, well, he's not all that. He's not all that powerful. And I was like, excuse me, I, I was incensed. I, I thought, go away from me, you idiot. I'm standing here in this quiet moment, honoring my God and worshiping the cosmic thing that I'm looking at, and this little dude comes walking up. Little dude, short. He was shorter than me. I never even looked at him because when he made that statement, he was like, what an idiot, go away. And eventually he did walk away. 
And I, I remember that because I, I kept saying to myself, God, how can you possibly have a nemesis creating all this chaos in the earth, which is like a pixel or a dust speck in the universe? How, how is this possible? It just never made sense to me. So your book is helping me not necessarily to throw the concept out the door, but dismantle the traditions that made him a godhead, a supernatural, a nemesis to the king of kings and the lord of lords. And I wasn't sure where we were going with your books, but the more I started looking at your research, I started comparing you to John Walton in a way, because you've done the work. You've done the research. You're quoting rabbis and all kinds of people from throughout the centuries to not justify your point, but to say, I'm not the only one who's thought this way. And that's, up. Yeah, go ahead. Important. Yeah, filling up that conclusion with the reasoning that underlies it. I, and like Dr. Walton says, right, I, I don't want to know what your answer is. I want to know how you got your answer. And right. Yeah, and so I think that's part of that work. And, and then just back a, a touch to this idea of, of the question you had that didn't make sense. You, the Lord and Savior at 18, and then through your journey, you had that question. But, but think of a little person, a little girl or boy at four, five, and six, when they ask their mommy and daddy at bedtime, well, mommy, why did God create Satan? Well, and of course, what happens next is the Christian answer. Right. Uh, but when I'm, when I'm sitting in the pew getting programmed at four, five, and six, and 18, and 32, whenever, yeah, we ask the question, but our, our drive for social compliance, Jeff, says the question, well, nobody around me is asking that question, and I can't shift from this group that accepts me, so I better just accept the answer, even though it doesn't make sense. And then we just shelf it, and it doesn't come. We, eventually, we dismiss it completely. But that's the power of social compliance uh, coupled with this political religious system that says i got to have power over masses over seeds of people, if you will, use the term from Revelation. and um, So and we now, create these gods. Well, we so create we these gods. We're not any different than the ancient world. God said, I mean, he stresses over and over and over, thou shalt have no other gods but me, and yet we give Satan all this credibility. And I go, you know, the thing that's interesting to me is Satan is not responsible for Adam. Sin entered the world through one man. Okay? Not a demon, not the nemesis of God, not Eve, the one man. Right. And you go through a lot, you, you wrap so much around these statements in your books and you give the research information and I'm like, you know, for example, let's, let's talk about, I saw Satan falling like a Bolt of lightning. Let's have a little fun. <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're, we will. It is fun. And I think um, that whole idea about this Satan falling, if, if in fact there is an individual who saw Satan actually leave the heavens, which is supposed to, in, in somebody's mind, it's depicting. I don't hear laugh. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> it's depicting the start of Satan, right? And people will say, well, he was. He was uh, Lucifer before he fell and then Satan after. But if we understand, as the ancients understood Hebrews, a Satanus or Hasatan as uh, an, 
a force that opposes God, be it a political religious system or the, the adversarial thoughts of my own heart and mind, uh, then the idea that this baton fell like lightning could be referring to the creator sees when all false religion ends, falls like lightning. And then when we connect it to the passage in Isaiah about uh, Lucifer, uh, we look right there that, that it expresses so clearly that this context of this passage is a human king that's being told. So there's a visionary or a prophet that sees, I'm going to see this guy's fall, because this is a king, a human king, and of course the morning star, or Lucifer, uh, was often known as an ancient uh, appellation for a king, because the, the god Venus was known right. to be a this bright shining star. And now we found that the text says clearly uh, to speak this to the king. Man. The man. And it repeats the word man several times. And it talks about when this man uh, was conquering other nations and was harassing other nations. And this man thought he had so much power and was untouchable. And this man, in fact, we see it um, excelled to the high place uh, in many ways it's placed. And we know what the high place represents in the ancients. It can represent being with the creator's divine presence. Right. It also represents the ancient pagan cults had high places where they went to meet their gods. It's, you know, I mean, when we talk about Zeus on the high mountain, Jesus went up on the high mountain, Moses went on the high mountain, the ark landed on the high mountain. In the ancient world, we're talking about in the place of the presence of our God or that particular God doesn't necessarily mean a high mountain, but it, because the allegory is, the word is axis mundi, which I learned from my co-host, Dr. Dina Dye, they saw the earth as a tripart place. The heavens were in the canopy, or at the tops of the trees, man was in the field, and the underworld was under the ground. And so Moses would not have seen the earth as a globe, a photograph taken by the Hubble. Neither would any of the writers of the Bible. So we have to understand their concept of heaven met in the high places within the earth, not on the other side of Jupiter. And so heaven would have been the place of his presence to Moses, not this place where we're going to get an airlift to one day. Right. And, so, and so when we start dismantling like John Walton and Professor Michael Morales, our concepts and we start giving them back to the ancient world, the Bible becomes less supernatural because everything was supernatural to the ancients because they, they were slaves to the gods. So, but it becomes less supernatural and more human. And therefore, when we see the king of Babylon deposed, the writers would have said, I saw him fall like a bolt of lightning. Or when we see the king of Tyre, when we understand that they're it says over and over and over, he was a man but we teach that he was Satan. And we ignore the very, the literal. Yeah, right, the literal context says it's a man. Right. And that's a hard thing. And, and, and just a quick note on Babylon, I love that you're mentioning that, John. Uh, um, we see in the Revelation that Satan, the, the, the old serpent, the devil, Satan, right, deceived the nations. And in chapter 18 of Revelation, uh, further down, we see it clarified that it was Babylon that deceived the nation. So we have an explanation of what all that is. So the old serpent is that the old serpent is that ancient false religion, right? The old deceptive force, the devil, the diablos is the Greek word. It's referring to um, a false 
pattern of thought. The satanas is referring to an adversary. And all of those terms now can be say, oh, that was the false religious system that, <laughs> that would deceive the whole earth. You know, uh, James, it's, it's interesting because, you know, you almost have to, you almost have to, um, when we talk, when we talk about Satan and being the king over all the demons of the earth, those passages don't exist in the scriptures. They don't exist. There's no thing in the scriptures that said Satan is the king of the underworld and he's a mass army getting ready to do battle against the saints. And the saints to the Christian world is the church. But when they were writing these passages, there was no such thing as that concept. It didn't exist. So we have to we, we have to unmuddle our minds long enough to give the possibility that adversity simply meant mankind raising himself up as though he were God and then dictating terms to the people that they lorded over because that is human history. Well, it is human history, Jeff. And, and I think we wrote about it to each other in one of our, our conversations. And you've explained it earlier really well, the Ephesians spiritual warfare passage in fact, when you talk about man needs to combat the system that's giving us false ideas and teaching, right, this spiritual warfare passage we find in Ephesians that says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Oh, I'm so glad you went here. Go ahead. Ephesians 6. Go ahead. Yeah, but against principalities and powers, against the... Oh, I've heard this about three times, four times this week alone as I promoted your books. So I, I'm so glad you brought this up. Let's go. In fact, By the way, we're the coming way. up on the end of our program today. We'll have to do this again. Uh, and before, and don't lose your thought. How can people get your books and information before I forget? How do people contact you, James? If any of your listeners want a free PDF of all four books, I'm happy to send it. Uh, if they just email me at jrbrayshaw at shaw.ca. If they go to my website, imaginalsatan.com, you can buy all four volumes uh, for 50 bucks U.S. plus shipping, 9.99, and uh, I will also then give them access to all four PDF versions to to scour while they're waiting for the soft cover versions to arrive. So yeah, please yeah, have them email me or go to the website. What the website? One more time, imaginenosatan.com. Yeah, imaginenosatan.com. Okay, principalities. First of all, folks, if you don't know this about the city of Ephesus, these were all the cults. These people here, they were in all kind of things. Every kind of cosmic thing you could think of was Ephesus. And I learned a lot of this from Rico Cortez and also from uh, uh, Joe Good. So when we're talking about Ephesus, we're talking about a community that was blatantly, blatantly immersed in all kinds of witchcraft, sorcery, pharmacia, or pharmaceuticals, if you will. And so now we see... Put on the full armor of the Lord, which in the Christian world is a Roman soldier. There's not a Jewish person who would have written that and said, hey, you got to look like a Roman soldier because that's the full armor of the Lord, you know, those people that are killing us. So we, we need to recognize that it's talking about putting on the full armor of the high priest and acting according to temple law. But anyway, we battle not against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities. Please. Help me with that one. <laughs> eat, 
we can have lots of discussions on it because I love that you gave that context. You precursed it with saying what was going on in Ephesus. And gosh, Jeff, if you or I were there and we are believers in this, this newly crowned Messiah and the religion that Paul now was proliferating, he was talking, he, Paul, in fact, was, as you know, was talking about Torah concepts and returning to Eden in so many ways. He, he, he quotes the Torah more than any, any writer in the Bible. Ooh, Go ahead. Great. It's scary as hell for us to have all that percolating around us, all those, those multi-god systems, the, the, our ancient, ancient pagan versions of religion. And so then we would have thought, We'd have thought, okay, Jeff, let's get our swords and stuff. We've got to go out and kill those people that are, that are opposing true religion. That's the only way to cleanse this place, man. That's the flesh and blood we've got to go attack. That's our battle right there. And then some smart guy came along. Let's call him Paul or, Sha- or Saul okay, or Shaul. 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 And he came along and he said, hey, guys, love that you got this idea of cleansing the land so we can return to Eden and... But, you know, you know, your battle's not against flesh and blood. You go ahead and kill all those people, guess what? All these ancient ideas will still exist. All these principles, these archaic, archaic is the Greek word, all these hierarchical structures that are pushing, it's a system that's pushing in the opposite direction of the creator's ideal. And that's your battle. It's not against flesh and blood. And he actually explains it earlier in Ephesians using the same terms, that they're magistrates and political leaders and religious leaders and the ideas that... that continue to be pontificated by those people. Well, before we close, and I think that's because I, I get that. It's kind of like where, where two or more are gathered in my name, I will be present. And, and it's kind of like, okay, he's really just saying where two or more are gathered against an, a, an offense, I will judge the matter. But we've mm-hmm. turned it into a theology, <laughs> and we've turned demons into a theology, and there's a lot of people out there And I'm not saying that what we're talking about is right from wrong. I'm just simply saying let's take a better look since we're taking a better look at the whole of Christianity and Catholicism and Protestant, all of it. The 36,000 denominations describing one God, we probably need to go back and understand the one God and not the theologies. And so that's kind of what Returning to Eden is all about. That's why you've written these books. Can you name the books? Before we close, starting with volume one, how did you end up with volume four? And just kind of walk me through that real quickly. Yeah, thanks. So Satan Christianity is Other God, volume one, that basically it literally covers every topic related to a Satan in the Hebrew Old Testament. Okay? So I needed to cover from the Old Testament forward, and I figured that's a great place to stop. But then there was the intertestamental period that occurred, and we needed to know how did we get from the Persia after the Old Testament stopped being used as a Hebrew uh, wisdom book, set of wisdom writings, how do we get into the New Testament era? So then I wrote the second volume, Imagine No Satan. And, sorry, Imagine There's No Satan is what it's called. And that one covers the actual transition period from when we leave Persia as a people and begin a New Testament era. But then we need to say, okay, but what all about the wellabouts? Well, what about when Jesus did? Well, what about when Jesus said? Well, what about when he encountered Satan in the wilderness? So then who's the devil? Jesus knew is volume four, and that covers all of the Gospels and every reference to Satan, in, and the, the Satan devil, demons, uh, evil spirits, all of that's in there. And then, of course, finally, the apostolic writings and the revelation of John also needs to be covered. And in this is it. Satan is finished, which is volume four. 
Uh, I dive in very deep to explain what the revelation is, why we understand it differently than John intended it as a prisoner in Patmos trying to not get caught writing letters to them, the ministers in the seven churches. Uh, We use some pretty veiled words. And then that takes it through all the other apostolic writings, including that Ephesians 6 passage we talked about. And, and, and just before I pass back to you, I do want to say this to our listeners, John, because you're saying this is a Jeff, really hard thing. You call me John twice now. Sorry, Jeff, I'm sorry. I was just okay. John. Oh, I want my audience to know. Hey, I, and I understand. James and I are getting to know each other, you guys. I call him James Jim. But I, I thought you called me John earlier, and I went, did he just call me John? Well, now I, you just confirmed it. My name is Jeff. <laughs> I'm James Brayshaw, and... And the reason why I called you that is because I was speaking of John the Revelator. Okay, go ahead. I'm so sorry. No, that's okay. That's that's no big deal. Trust me. I do it all the time. I say things. I go back and listen to these recordings, and I go, God, I can't believe I said that. So I get it. But anyway, go ahead and finish your thought. So I guess what I always want to say is don't do what I did. When I learned about this, I used it as a hammer in so many ways. Um, please take time, digest some things, be, be honest with your own thoughts and questions because you need to find the answers within yourself and take some time to digest before you go ahead and, and drop this on the people in your world. Because as, as Jeff can attest to and I can attest to, the pushback is way harder on us as humans and as families when we... <coughs> And we dropped the bomb, as Jeff called it. So you know, get in touch if anybody has any questions. I haven't even cracked open. This is it. Satan has finished it. I haven't even looked at it. Because I, I kind of wanted to find out where your brain was at. So I skimmed through the – I typically what I do is I'll skim through a book, and I'll, I'll just kind of read some of the main verses in the first chapter, second chapter – and then when something catches my eye, I'll go ahead and do that. But then I typically will go back and read the entire book, and that's kind of where I'm at with you now. And I'm working on the second book, and I'm going, ugh. You know, the people that have just dismissed you out of hat, and I sit here and I go, okay, you haven't even looked at the material. You haven't even you're, – you're coming at me – with your claws out, so to speak, and these are wonderful friends of mine, without even looking at the material and looking at the research. And how long have you been doing this? 20 years? You've researched these books? Yeah, it's, I guess, 2003 was when I, just before that was when I got kicked out of the institutional church and then started researching freely. Before we go, I sent you the eight uh, playlists for John Walton. How, how did that, um, because I, I, you and I have a couple of differences in a lot of areas, and I think that's great. Professor Skip Moen says, why in God's name would I agree with every word somebody's saying? Uh, what am I going to learn? <laughs> you know? But as I look at some of your material, and then I fetch you Walton stuff, did Walton crack open a few doors for you? Yeah, Walton did. I, I was able to go through several of those videos from the conference, and he that guy just delighted me in the way he explained his concepts. And because and, I need to know how you got there as well. I don't judge if you give me your conclusion because obviously you got there. And, and he did crack open a few doors. The, the idea of the cultural, uh, cultural rivers and us 
being written, written for us, not to us. And the idea that the kingdom is an eternal entity that should really follow all the way through scripture and the temple idea of where the creator's presence dwells. Why wouldn't it be at the start and at the end and in the middle? Right. And it was really enjoyable to watch. But I did do this, I'll tell you. Um, I wanted to get through some of them before we met here on this call. So I put it on uh, 1.25 times speed to play it a little bit faster uh, on the YouTube. You could do that. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a, this, yeah. If you take nothing else from our talk together uh, audience, up in the top, there's a little ellipsis, click it. And you can, it says speed, and you can play normal. You can play 1.25, one and a half, two times, and it's pretty helpful. Well, that's interesting. I didn't know that. I don't, I don't, I have to take stuff in at a slower pace than perhaps because I don't know that I would find usefulness for that. But anyway, James, Mr. Brachel, I appreciate you spending the time with us. We're 10 minutes past our normal time. I'd love to invite you back. In fact, I'd love to have you come on with Dr. Dina Dye, uh, and we can we can kind of pick this conversation up again with her present. Uh, I'd love to do that. Would you be willing to do that? I have so much to learn from you and Dr. Dina, Jeff, so right. by all means, invite me back. I, I'd love that. I, I think, you know, the best part about all of this is we're dismantling concepts and being restored to what the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is talking about, and why wouldn't we challenge the authority of Satan whereby he has none. Yeah. <laughs> Appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers to you. Have a great day. You too, my friend. We'll be talking to you soon. By the way, I'll get this edited, and I'll send you both the video and the audio. You can do whatever you want with it. I'm going to post it all over our medium uh, as soon as I get it edited, okay? So I do appreciate your time. And we kind of scratched the surface because I'm reading your books and the detail by which we aren't able to cover in this show. I hope we plant a few seeds for people to be encouraged to check out your material and take a look at what you've done. Okay? Thank you, my friend. Have a great day. Bye-bye.